we had an existence there where people constructed objects, artifacts, according to input often that was socially mediated. So you would have, for example, an artisan who was taught to be a carpenter by their parent, their father, and or they're a weaver and they were taught by their parents or whatever. The function doesn't matter. What matters here is that they came from a long line of previous artisans and they grew into a cultural construct that was built around that identity. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. In this conversation, we are seeking to understand and appreciate how the nature of human experience and perception interrelates with technology. In other words, how our natural human capabilities and cognition correspond with and shape and then are influenced by the technologies we build and how these cross-pollinate and influence each other. Some researchers see, in the advance of technology, unlimited potential. Others see a danger in its expanding influence. Join Aviv Shahar, Dr. Alan Litchfield, and Wei Albert Yeep, two global researchers on the leading edge of technology development, to explore the evolution of artificial intelligence and its implications for the evolution of humanity. The central propulsion of portals of perception is an inquiry about how we humans evolve with our consciousness and perception and where and how the future emerges. Today we are seeking to understand and appreciate how the nature of human experience and perception interrelates with technology. In other words, how our natural human capabilities and cognition correspond with and shape and then are influenced by the technologies we build. How these cross-pollinate and influence each other. So I'm going to ask my two guests to each introduce themselves and offer some introductory thoughts through the lens of the work about the human interface with technology and how this conversation, that is, the human and technology conversation, how it shapes the future that's emerging now. Please, Albert. Good morning. I'm uh, Albert Yip, Professor of uh, AI, Artificial Intelligence at AUT, the Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. I've been fascinated about artificial intelligence and hence the use of technology and intelligence is the core of my research. I am an old-fashioned researcher 
that are focused on the very, very fundamental questions of how to unravel the mystery of the mind using AI technology. Despite the fact that when I first entered into AI, it was very premature at that stage. So I've seen the progression of the technology from the start to now. I might look young, I might say, <laughs> but I'm already doing more than 40, about 40 years of research in AI. I look forward to this interesting talk to share, uh, interesting talk to share my thoughts on the subject. Wonderful. So offer, Albert, please, an, an opening context of where you see the field right now and, and what are some of the perhaps important questions that you'd want to see for the conversation? Great point. I almost talked about that. You might not uh, like what I said. The future is bleak <laughs> with technology <laughs> and AI especially. When um, Elon Musk claimed that what AI is doing is creating the demon for the future, he might not realize how true that is. So yes, we are advancing very rapidly, and that's because of the double-edged sword of AI technology. We benefited from it, and therefore we want it, but we do not know how dangerous we are creeping towards what I often use as an analogy to describe the situation, and that is we are creating the board. The Star Trek board, if you know, the board that will assimilate everything and resistance is futile. Hmm. That is where we are heading towards. That is my opening line. Thank you. Hi, my name's uh, Dr. Alan Tamoringa Litchfield, and I have a passion for new and novel technologies, but the passion is focused on how technologies mediate the empowerment of individuals and groups. Currently, I, as a lecturer at AUT, in New Zealand. I'm also director of the Service and Cloud Computing Research Lab. And in the lab, we focus on the evolution and the use of new technologies as they have emerged over the last several years. And we look at how can these be applied primarily to resolve particularly human problems and how we can apply them to different kinds of uses, maybe to what they weren't intended for. So most recently, as an example, we've been uh, leading research into decentralized and distributed software architectures. And we've been looking at, for example, in that context, the applications of blockchain technologies and a range of applications. And we've also been looking at optimization techniques of cloud-based services, security, privacy, all of these sorts of issues that come up uh, when we've been looking at that. In terms of my professional life, I'm a member of the Association of Computing Machinery, the IEEE, and I'm also past president of the Association for Information Systems Special Interest Group on Philosophy and Information Systems. So my areas branch and broad across a wide range of areas. And I guess that's slightly reflective too, because I came into this academic sphere from several decades of working in industry. And so my approach is perhaps less traditional and it's more applied. Where would you seed with us 
Alan, the, the space of the inquiry today about the relationship between human and technology. What, what are some of the seeding inquiries that you would bring to the beginning of um, this exploration? People consider that technology is something which is separate from the person, from ourselves. And my view on this is that actually technology is a representation of our current state of mind. And so whereas technology has often followed what we have been doing or considering, and you see this as an example in terms of the lead up to the Industrial Revolution, what we are now seeing is that technology has become a trigger for change personally and and societally, socially. And this I'm seeing is an emergent property within people and also within the emergence of technology itself. This thing of emergent property is perhaps something that we can explore later if we have time. Okay, I'm, I'm very interested that we circle back to what you mean by emergent property and to exploring the nature of what's evolving now. At the 50,000 foot view, as we reflect and ask about the evolutionary trace of technology, we may indeed choose to go all the way back to prehistoric context and, and look at sharp stones as the early technology that enabled us to do what we couldn't do with our hands. And then as you trace through history, uh, you will pause on ideas and, and step function improvements or, or developments or evolution such as the, the invention of the wheel, the printing press for sure, the steam engine, aviation, telephone and the radio, and all the way through to the computing revolution that brings us to the, the focus of our inquiry today. So, Albert, how would you tell the brief version of the story of that those, what is it, 60, 70, 80 years were really from the discovery of the notion of um, computability in 1936. How would you tell that story? Okay, well, the notion of computability really leads us to understand what can be computed or cannot be computed by the computers. And the incredibly curious minds of those days, especially Alan Turing, immediately Having discovered that notion of computability, ask the questions of, could a machine be intelligent? And can we test that machine to be intelligent? And from there on, the, the birth of the notion of AI emerged without knowing. And, in this, and then fast forward to 1960s, people are working on creating machines that could be intelligent in some way. And remember, in, in those periods, people are more used to using machines to do things, brute force, heavy lifting and those things. And there are no machines that could think in order to solve a problem. And that thinking is what 
the early air researchers trying to overcome or create or discover a method to do so. So from computability to almost thinking. And bear in mind in the 60s, this is a very challenging problem and nobody knows how to do it. And so the AI researchers usually began then by creating any machines, any program that can solve a problem. And of course, they're inspired by how humans solve problems, especially the high-level tasks. At that time, that they think the high-level tasks, such as playing a chess, a chess master must be very intelligent, and guy with a PhD, a professor must be very intelligent, and, and so forth. So they try to imitate those tasks that can be solved by a computer. Now that must be intelligent. And so they created many programs that start to solve uh, crypto arithmetic, they start to play chess and so forth. And that was exciting. But after a while, it's, it was not so. Why? Because they know the answer. They know how their programs work. And therefore, they realized that mm, it's not really that intelligent. All our programs were doing was search. Search the pattern and find the answer. That's how you play chess, how you well, simplify for how you play chess, how you solve crypto arithmetic, how you create a general problem solvers and those programs in the 60s. So they start to realize, and here is where the technology and the uh, nature of intelligence and the insight into human behavior start to, we can see the, the, the effect of it. We start to realize that, hey, that is not intelligent. What is intelligent is we able to have a conversation. What is intelligent is that we open our eyes and we see things in the world. What is intelligent is we walk with two legs. What is intelligent is we can grab a cup or hold a, an egg without crashing it. Now, those perceptual capabilities of humans are the true nature of intelligence. And so they shift into creating intelligent machines by modeling the perceptual tasks. But unfortunately, the problems that they were looking at at that time are too small. And what we now call the toy world problems or the block world problems. And these problems cannot be scaled up. Now, what are some examples of these problems are Yes, they were fascinated with vision, but what they do is they simply take a camera and see how you can process the information from the camera. And they were interested in saying, well, when we have an input from the camera, which is the intensity images, we want to derive the objects in it. Again, the root there is really problem solving. These are engineers. Okay? So they're very good at solving problems. And so, for example, they try to understand language or having a conversations. But what they do is that they look at it and say, oh, hmm, maybe we don't need to process the syntax of a language. We only have to process the meanings of the words and combining them. So one group of researchers simply reduce a sentence into primitives and combining the primitives to give you the meaning. Why? Because they observed that the sentence, I gave her a book and the book was given to her by me, really means the same thing, irrespective of the surface structure. So they look at these problems, but these problems cannot scale up to the real world in terms of when we see it's far more complicated than just getting an object out of the image. So they struggle with that and then they realize they need to shift again. And 
Then they want to look at real world problem, and then and then some ideas come into the fact that oh, maybe we put knowledge into our programs. Why? Because who are the experts? The doctor. The doctor has huge amount of knowledge in the head. Uh, the professor has a huge amount of knowledge in the head. So what our programs are lacking is the knowledge. And they try that again. So what you can see in the trend is that the shift from one problem solving to another problem solving to another problem solving. And of course, the knowledge has problem because controlling those knowledge is very difficult. Because, for example, knowledge keeps changing. Okay, the cure for today may be overwritten by some others or maybe discarded for some other reasons. And, and then in the real world, they have problems because who is responsible for, for these knowledge problems are known as expert system. Who are responsible for the expert systems? And how do you resolve the conflict of knowledge? And how do you gather the knowledge and put them into the machine? All these are very difficult issues, again, for scaling up to the real world. And so people lost interest in AI again. And so the next thing is they have to learn. And here comes a neural network. You've got to learn. And from learning and data mining, and all these things we progress to now with robots and so forth, we are now more excited because now we really can scale up. And all the governments around the world are paying attention because this is now getting serious. From my perspective, from my research, unfortunately, AI researchers are more like engineers. They want to solve the problem and they want to solve it in a way that the machine works. So they pay little attention to the cognitive science and other philosophy and psychological aspects of the problem. And this means they miss a very important part of the equation. And this is why I believe they will lead to a dangerous machine in the end, which I have more to say later. Let's take what Albert said and reinterpret that slightly. Right? So what we've seen is that there has been a necessary growth of focus on electronic technologies, partly because we were able to, and you know the, the work of amazing minds like Alan Turing, right, that allowed us to be able to understand some of these fundamental properties of mathematical constructs that enabled us to be able to build these into sequences of programmatic steps, right? And we could guarantee that it would always happen in sequence. And this is an engineer's viewpoint of the world because everything needs to be able to be broken down into a guaranteeable set of sequences that are repeatable, yeah? If you get a different result at the other end of that, then you have a problem, and the problem isn't with the the process the problem is that you didn't get your steps right and and albert's raised a really important point at the end of what he was just saying is that what's missing in this is that this doesn't accurately reflect the way in which we exist as people because we don't follow guaranteeable steps in our lives and language is a brilliant example of this because language is not fixed. If language were fixed, 
then we could say that if we could take our sentence and we put that same sentence into a block of other sentences, it would have the same meaning. But it doesn't, because it's fully contextualized. And a lot of the approaches that we have to development of sequential systems is that they find it difficult to change their meaning according to context. Why? Why is this the case? Well, maybe this is because as we emerged from the artisanal period of human existence, which is the pre-industrial world, we had an existence there where people constructed objects, artifacts, according to input often that was socially mediated. So you would have, for example, an artisan who was taught to be a carpenter by their parent, their father, and or they're a weaver and they were taught by their parents or whatever. The function doesn't matter. What matters here is that they came from a long line of previous artisans and they grew into a cultural construct that was built around that identity. And this was fractured at that period of the Industrial Revolution because, you know, we have this whole thing of Fordism, don't we, you know, which was the breaking down of those structures and work into a series of mini tasks that anybody could perform. They required no training. They, the person, the participant, in that process was nothing more than a unit on a conveyor of tasks. Right? And this thinking fed into the development of early computer systems, which was that these are series of tasks and anybody who was an, a computer operator ought to be able to step into that task and replace a person at different times. This is how they were designed. Right? And this has also been, consequently, how computer languages were designed. Right? So computer languages were designed so that anybody ought to be able to pick up that piece of coded language and understand its meaning and its intent because of its structure and its form. But again, we now have a problem, don't we? Because this fails to take into account the highly contextualized nature of the way that people are. So we had this problem, we have this problem, where we don't know how to make the shift in technology yet so that it better reflects the context and intent of people collectively and individually. And that's where we are now. Right. Well, so let me try and build and weave a few thoughts here with that and, and see where we want to uh, explore next. The first insight, as I listen to what you are both describing, from the trace of the last 60, 70 years of the, the computing revolution, the advent of the internet and, and so on, is we are observing nonlinear progressions. It appears as though nothing much is going on and then something seems to disrupt in a major way, there are all sorts of 
developments and, and that opens a new set of opportunities and so on. So my first observation is it's nonlinear. The second observation is what Peter Drucker, who used to be the, well, really the, the founder of, manage, of the management system, observed what I later in my, through the lens of my Air Force experience, I call the understood overshoot problem. Peter Drucker observed that with all new technologies, we overshoot our expectations and they underdeliver in the first wave. Then we become cynical about the promise of the technology and therefore we swing to the other side. We don't think they will deliver much. And right when we lost interest, they overdeliver. By the way, that corresponds with what we understand to be bull and bear markets in stock market or in any category. It's the, the inverse relationship of those two vectors in terms of our expectation of how a category will, will perform versus what it performs in, in the real world. When I came to the first lending practice in the Air Force, what did I do? I produced a scary undershoot. If there wasn't an instructor sitting behind me, we would crash in the sand half a mile before the runway. But luckily, there was somebody sitting behind me through the throttle forward, and we went around and came for another approach to landing. What did I do in that second approach? I produced an extraordinary overshoot, and halfway over the runway, I get a scream in my ear, are you still trying to land here? Because I'm way far above the, the runway. So we humans seem to be struggling with the perception that we have until we get trained. You get trained, you do this many times, and you actually get to experience the descent to the runway to correspond well with your perception of how you navigate in this three-dimensional or four-dimensional picture. So in a similar way, for us, we seem to struggle with appreciating where we are with the evolution of technology and why this is relevant to this moment in time because people overpromised about the delivery of AI for, as you said, Albert, for 60 years. In my work today with leadership teams in uh, Seattle, in Silicon Valley, I hear that perhaps we have entered that inflection point where it is about to over-deliver. But I've been hearing this for a while, for several years, so, so this is why I'm interested. Are we there? Are we not? And what do people actually promise that is going to be delivered? Uh, so give us, um, Albert, some appreciation of, again, where we are this moment in time and what are the questions that we are looking at at this point? Excellent. Enjoy both your comments. We are at the start of the inflection point. Don't think we will over-deliver anymore. It's getting serious, partly for two reasons, really. One is the advance of robotics, especially humanoids, which brings the intelligent program that we created sitting on a computer really into the real world. And sadly, the warfare will push that technology further 
And, and the second thing is really the breakthrough on data. Interestingly, data comes to the rescue to AI, which is like data is, if you remember, Star Trek has a data. <laughs> the, the incredible robot container, the intelligent robot. So with data and data mining, eliminates the problem of putting knowledge into the computer and allow them to use it in an incredible manner that makes the programs very useful. And hence what we see many technology now are using data mining, especially for example, the, the driving car, self-auto driving car and, and other things. So with this catapult up to this level, I think the inflection point is real this time. So in my other, the other side of my life where I work with um, senior executives, I interviewed just in the last few weeks for my business podcast, three CEOs in the Seattle area, each one of whom, they, they are each leading a, um, an AI, different kind of an AI company. One is leading an AI endeavor to automate factories. That's that vision that you will not need, you will not need people to run the factory. Sometimes they call it dark factories. They will work by themselves. So he's building with his team a solution to solve that problem. A second team, a second company is looking to convert with the help of AI a way to translate educational experiences into economic opportunities to essentially guide people better in a smarter way into their professional careers. And a third company is trying to use uh, three different kind of AI applications to discover and analyze resonance of video content. So I've asked each one of them in different words about the frontier of AI. This is just in the last few weeks. And each one in different words said to me what you are telling me, that largely AI is still a high-velocity pattern recognition kind of a, an engine. And that it is still not seriously, not where they are engaged with AI, still not seriously approaching what you were both describing as more of the intuitive human capacity to perceive in space, to create engagement, to, to flow with the conversation. So two questions here. Is it true or are we actually pressing into the intuitive, creative space? And if yes, uh, in what way? And let me actually put, pause this and, and see how you respond to that. Well, I would ask the question, do we want AI to do that? Well, I, I should have said, Obviously, in the context of what I described, these are three endeavors where they find legitimate, what they will rightly describe as a genuine market opportunity, an unsolved problem, an unmet need, using AI to address that need, thereby to create economic value. We're here more in a philosophical exploration about AI and the frontiers of that development. So this is why I'm asking you, what, how do you comment on this? And, and you begin with this question. So inside the question that I asked is another question, yes. right? 
And the question is, for what purpose do we construct these apparently intelligent programs? Right? Because let's not forget that ultimately we as a species are very good and this is one of the things that albert mentioned earlier about you know what is it that makes humanity right and these you know ryle gave us some definitions in the 1920s and 30s you know that it's erect stature we walk on two legs that we have a a mind that thinks and so on right and that we are able to make tools and when you put all of those things together this is how he defined humanity right the essence of human being and so the apparently intelligent machines that we've made are themselves tools so the question is are we seeking to make these things replications of humanity let me go back to answer Harry's question and then i would like to go back to address yours your three executives were right the difference that they didn't point out or may not realize is that because we are able to do so much now with AI in terms of data mining and robotics as opposed to the past few phases. We created very large corporations which are very powerful. Now in the past, we depend on the people in the ivory tower to do the research and then try hard to sell it to the business people. And they were very skeptical. And even if they, and they try, sometimes they try, and as you pointed out, Avi, that they failed. And therefore, you have this overshoot and undershoot. But now we have this huge corporation. We do not need to depend, and we are not selling. They are having large amount of money to do it. So for example, we now have people who are working very hard on emotional robots. We have people who are working on brain, brain interface with the robots. So while at the moment, yes, there is limitation to the data mining and to the, to the use of data, as uh, Professor Andrew Ng pointed out in, in, a, in an article to the business people about the limitation of machine learning and article, we are not really doing learning when they use machine learning. Okay. But because of this huge profit and huge cooperation, and now they are actually hiring all these experts into one place to create the thing that they want to. For example, go into space. They can go on their own without the government. Now, this is the turning point, which then created, which I call the start of the inflection point and created the intelligent being, even though we are not there yet. So the question was, is it really our intent to replicate humanity within exactly. the machine context. Right. Oh, wow. It's our intent to do so. Personally, I don't think we have a choice. And here lies the danger I talked about at the beginning. Now, we don't have a choice because we are trusting forward. It's just like you're in a rocket. I mean, you're, you're just the passengers in the rocket. The rocket will go forward. And 
the answer to your question will be very complicated because while we do not intend to do so, and there are now AI researchers awakened to the danger of AI, well, not everybody agrees, but quite a lot of them are agreeing to the danger of AI. There was a, a letter being circulated around in the internet that asked us to sign to say that we want to have a friendly AI. We must create friendly AI and not otherwise. After signing the paper, the government, the, the, I think Daba, whatever, offered a huge amount of money for some military AI thing, and a lot of people signed up for the grant. <laughs> oh, well, that's a side story. But the danger here is, to me, that they are creating these powerful machines, as I keep saying. And I keep saying that they are not intelligent at all. They are simply fast and powerful, despite we keep calling them artificial intelligence. If you look at AI, they're all about applications. So I coined out a term called artificial intelligence or artificial intelligence, where there's a capital A and a little I and a little A and a capital I. The capital A, little I is what most people are doing. They're only interested in the artificial bit. They're not interested in the question of intelligence. Whereas the little A, capital I, is the intelligent bit where we are interested in the question of intelligence. Now the trouble is, do we intend to create this thing? No, we don't intend, but they keep creating these things, which means that these machines get to be more powerful and more powerful, and they will, I believe, one day take over the world. <laughs> now, the problem with that is not that they take over and kill us. That is to be expected in the near, in the near future, or as part of, or not part of, even, in the near future, if we continue like this. The problem is, that they literally create a machine to take over us. Now, that to me is problematic. An analogy here is like, we think we are smart. We have this forest, rainforest, because we can create some chemicals. We say that we can burn down the whole forest. We don't care. And we destroy a lot of things inside the forest. The, the great things inside the forest that we haven't discovered. We destroy everything, thinking that we know how to do everything. Same thing with machines intelligence is that we create machine intelligence take over us without understanding how we have evolved to be that intelligent. Now that knowledge is lost once the humanity is destroyed. And that is the sad thing. Not because we are killed, but that knowledge is lost. My advice is to understand how the mind could become so intelligent. How, what, what, what did we, how, how did we evolve to this level? Now if we get that knowledge and put it into the machine, now, I claim that we have evolved by jumping across the species from biological to metallic. Now, that is good because it's part of evolution. I mean, the dinosaurs died and we didn't cry because we were destroyed. So, so that, that's the danger. It's not intent, but we cannot control it. But at the same time, I can see the dark side of it. It's so dark that humanity, our, our knowledge of evolution is just completely lost without this, right? We have the opportunity now to discover it. We have the knowledge, we have the skill. But sadly, very few ask that questions. They're all busy CEOs of the companies. There are no researchers now. Really, seriously asking this question, very few. Well, so before we get hopeful again, let me just make things a little darker. <laughs> okay, good. So let me bring the, the two cynical contrarian voices that are not present here, but, but I will voice them. One cynical contrarian view will say that really technology did not solve any of the true 
existential civilizational problems so far that's on the global table they will say look technology didn't solve the pandemic didn't solve climate change you could say accelerated the development of a vaccine but didn't solve the problem in a major way not climate change and not several other large problems and they will say that that same cynical voice will say that really what most of what happened in the last 30-40 years did not deliver on the promise of the late 80s, early 90s because in the early 90s the conventional wisdom was the computing technology will free us up and will give us all tremendous amount of leisure time. Well, guess, guess what? The third decade of the 21st century, most of the people in the companies that I help, they work 24-7. So people are actually became slaves to the technology development rather than were freed up to have more free time. And thirdly, the, that cynical voice will assert that most software applications actually support other software applications that support other software applications. And that therefore, the biggest results of the last 60 years, they will claim that's a cynical voice. I'm channeling that cynical voice. What it will say is that the biggest change is really, Albert, where you landed, is that what technology produced was a, a new class of super millionaires and billionaires. But that's, the, that's the biggest result that happened. And now I'll bring into it the, the adjacent or the other cynical voice, which is that we cannot look at the evolution of technology over the last 60 years without that other trace of what happened in the economy, moving through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, where the economy became much more financialized, where variety of spaces in, in academic research, namely mostly computer technology and biotechnology, researchers discovered that there was a huge money to be made and the entire system was turned on its head and therefore we are now 40, 50 years later with what you're describing, Albert, as pretty bleak and dark future and that if there was a hypothetical way to take money out of the system and free it up from that greed drive, again, I'm, I'm describing a hypothetical story, then perhaps you could release the system to its more purer way of research. Of course, you'll have the people on the other side who will say to, what, to the argument I just presented, this is a total rubbish, they will say, <clears throat> and they will rightly point to how the free market economies and the capitalist system unlocked so many possibilities to advance technology. So I just, I'm describing those different contradicting voices where are you in this debate? What overview would you like to offer to put it all in context? I'm more in between in the crack. I'm lost in the crack in that uh, debate. I don't quite... Uh, I, 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 if you ask me to choose one, I will more agree with the other side, the second half of the critic, who says that, yes, we created the opportunity and we created the, the, the space Yes, we didn't solve the pandemic, but then we overcome the pandemic somehow and we learned a lot in the process. 
I'm, I fall in the crack in the sense that for many things that are outside our body, it's fine. Engineering solutions are fantastic. Biological uh, bios solutions are fantastic. But once it comes into the intelligence of the mind, then it's a whole different story. Okay. Then, yes, then they didn't solve anything. In fact, they, I switched to the other side of the, of the debate, of the critics, and say that, yes, they offer us no clear insights into the problem of intelligence. So, so I'm in between. And just to add to that as well, which, yeah, thanks, because that opens the door for my slightly different position. Yeah. So, yes, it's, it, it, these arguments are raised, but I think that they fail to appreciate that the technologies that have been developed to solve specific problems probably did solve the problems that they were designed to solve. We have on the other side of that, of course, the you know this law of unintended consequences that you know any time we seem to create a new technological advance, we create other problems, and so we have to then resolve those, right? And that is because nature is nature, and often nature is unpredictable or difficult to predict. And, you know, a part of what Albert does and what I do in my own research a lot is around prediction. We take information, we take data, we try to posit what's going to happen next. This is called science. If we do this, that should happen. Oh, no, that didn't happen. What went different? And I'm not going to say wrong. Right, because there's no wrong in this, there's just only unexpected. So we have this technological situation that we now find ourselves in. And yes, I think we're both agreed, Albert and I, that we're actually on a crux. Right? We're at a very crucial point in terms of the existence of humanity. And it can go in all sorts of many directions. And if you're a quantum theorist, you might have thousands or infinite number of potential directions and universes that can evolve from this point now. So is this then an opportunity for us then, as we are developing these apparently intelligent systems, artificially created, that we are learning more about how we think we did this, didn't we, in terms of being able to break down the process of playing chess into, well, what are the motivations, what are the steps, what are the rules, and how do we learn from mistakes, and all of these sorts of things that we've done. So we learned how we think. And one of the really curious things that I've observed about the mind and intelligence and perception is that as we learn its current state, it changes. By learning its current state, it creates a new state. And that new state is somehow different from the previous state because it incorporates its current state plus some. And perhaps one of the reasons why we've found it so difficult to tie down this apparently intelligent system artificially created is because every time we create the current state, our perception has moved on and is encompassing what we have just created plus more. 
And so, as I said earlier, is that we're in a situation now where technology has become a trigger for personal, social, societal change. But one of those appearances is that in terms of artificial intelligence, that the creation of artificial intelligence has created an evolutionary shift in perception in the mind of the human. We're able to perceive more. We're able to perceive differently than what we did in perhaps 1936. That what we're creating as intelligence systems now, we might see them now as advanced in the moment that we create them. And yet five years later, we look back on and we go, well, that was so primitive. And in five years' time, the systems that we create, we'll look back on those and we'll go, well, that was so primitive. Or three years, or two years, or one year, because we seem to be in a logarithmic spiral of growth. So what you offer there brings um, us to, I believe, the core inquiry about the mystery of learning. I've had, uh, we've had here in the house our granddaughter for a first ever sleepover with her grandparents uh, yesterday, 20 months young. And first of all, I observe that she learns, she makes extraordinary leaps sometime in, in a matter of days or weeks. Second of all, I observe that she knows and she is much more intelligent. Here is this word we're using again, intelligence. She is much more intelligent than she is actually able to translate in language as yet. And she seems to be able to assimilate with profound leaps. So I ask myself, what is a way to explain that this leaps the, the leaping mind, the, the capacity of the mind to make such leaps. And I'm, I'm going to offer you four conjectural possible stories. I don't know which one is right or whether it's a combination of any of the four. But I think when you're describing the kind of challenges we are facing now, they more lean into this unresolved mystery. Okay, conjectural story one. Is it possible, could it be, that the toddler coming into this world already shows up with the entirety of the human experience and knowledge encoded to the brain, such that when they go through the experience, innervates and activates, and they, they unlock what's, what is already latent, I'm going to use this coarse language in this context, what is already wired into their hard drive in their brain. Conjecture story one. Conjecture story two says now, can't be in the brain because so much of how the brain unfolds or develops is to do with these synaptic connections, making new connections. So it must be somewhere else. Let's imagine there is something we call a soul. Let's imagine that the soul <laughs> is something that we can describe as an invisible loom of information. It's an information network. And that therefore when the brain moves into different situations, it downloads from the soul that combination of knowledge and activates it in the brain. So that's conjecture story two. Conjecture story three says now that 
entire knowledge exists somewhere, but not in her, not in her soul, not in her brain. It exists in the cloud. Use metaphor, technology metaphor terms. What's the cloud? The astral realm, the Akashic realms, some other realms with the collective knowledge or what Jung will call collective unconscious is lodged. And then every time she moves between different situations and instances, she downloads from the cloud and activates as, exactly as my computer downloads the update of, of any of the software that, that's running. So that's conjectural story three. Conjectural story four is more, I think, an, an interesting, intriguing, provocative direction that, that Alan is proposing for us, and I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, where it suggests that actually we think of ourselves as individual units, but we are not. We, we are a connected network. So for her, she's 20 months young, but she interacts with mommy and daddy and grandparents and other people around, every time there is a social interaction, that, that some of the latent potential knowledge is actually locked in all these connections and every interaction, every connection, brings online for her, activates for her, something that exists in that latent collective knowledge. And that's how she makes the leaps in which... I think this is partly the suggestion you're making, Alan, there. We've been obsessed with individuality, with individual performance and all that, focusing on the individual person. You're saying, no, in a reframe, reversed of you, think about the human phenomena more through the social, communal, interpersonal lens, how as those evolve in their sophistication and capacity, that evolves intelligence. And that's how even when a baby, when a toddler shows up in the world, they actually quickly trace through these layers of sophistication, through social interaction. These are four conjectural stories. I have no idea, but my point is, you are describing that technology or AI or, or whatever we have known as compute and is is now seeking the Holy Grail. And if it is seeking the Holy Grail, it's going to be exploring these kind of inquiries. Which of these or another story would you uh, be inclined to uphold? Another story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I almost like your last one, but no. Because you then go away and, and talk about the society or, or the connectedness. Is the individual, the mind. The mind is really fascinating. And we need to frame the problem differently. Okay? Many people frame the problem like the way you describe it. Oh, I observe these kids and they learn very fast, phenomenal, and incredible. But really, the problem is not that. That can be explained actually quite easily without using any of the full conjecture. But the problem really is. If you think about it, I always think of what the problem with, with AI is that we put the program and the knowledge and the task into the computer. It didn't learn. What do I mean by learn? Learn is not teaching many of the learning algorithms that we learned as an adult. 
we have many ways of teaching and learning, but it's not that. The amazing learning is this. The infant is born. It learns on its own. It sees the world and it starts to learn. So if you want to understand learning, we must ask, how can I create a computer program that given the input and the senses from the real world, without telling it what to do, can learn like the infant. I can't tell the program anything, and yet it can learn. That is amazing. Once you solve that, the learning very fast can be explained in this way. Infant learning of the physical world, what they learn are some rules guiding the behavior. So psychologists have, this comes from the psychologists, because I have no psychologist. So the psychologists observe that if you experiment the infant and make them observe things in the real world, and then you change that behavior, suddenly at some point they get excited because that was not expected. By that, it means that they have learned something. And the things they learn are not simple, not the kind of machine learning where we fit in a lot of data. This apple, this not apple, this orange, is not orange. We are not learning like this. The thing we learn is, if there's a, a toy car, they go down a slope, okay? If you put a block here, it learns the notion of this is an obstacle of the path and it expects to stop. Now, if you simulate that and this car goes through the block and the infant will get shot. So they learn the notion of obstacle. They learn the notion of support. So if you put a pen like this, you let go, it should drop. And if it didn't drop, it will shot. These things are not visible to the infant. Okay, it's not like the pain. The pain is visible. You can see the pain. You can see the apple. But these kind of rules, how could it form this rule without telling it? Now, that is the amazing question. Now, if the reasons once they start, somehow got that trigger, then the mind will explode. And that's why they learn so fast because they're capturing everything along that line. But how did we do that? Now, that, to me, is the real mystery of learning. So, so in AI research, I focus on three things, the language, the learning, and spatial connection. And it turns out after many years of learning, I realized I was lucky to start with spatial connection because spatial connection is the simplest of all. Because why? Now with hindsight, I can explain that. You can see many animals and things from rats to humans, they all need spatial connection. You know that because we move around the environment, we need to know how to return back to our nest. Then come learning is the next important step because without understanding how the world acts, we know nothing. So spatial connection, learning, and language, of course, is the most powerful. And that's why only we humans have language, language because it's the most difficult. Okay? So in all three, once we learn what is happening in them, we will have unravel the mystery of the mind. Now, the problem with AI is the AI researchers don't pay attention to this mystery, okay? So, for example, in language, we have a famous paradox called Baker's Paradox, whereby the infant, it was discovered by these psychologists and heavily debated among them with notable scientists like Minsky and uh, Pinger. And the, in brief, what is it that they recorded the, the infants listening to the words while they were very young from birth to when they start to speak. And it was realized that when they start to speak, suddenly they generate and use grammatical structure that are not in the data. 
So how could they learn that if they're not in the data? And if they're all in the data, that's fine. I mean, we have many AI algorithms that could learn that once you're in the data, but it's not in the data. So where does it come from? So it leads to very famous researchers like, oh, not Minsky, sorry, Chomsky. But Chomsky and Pinger who claim that Grammar must be innate because there's no way to learn that from the data. So it must be innate. And so there's a huge debate whether grammar is innate or not innate. You see, but AI researchers look at the syntax, the rules, and say, ah, oh, okay, in order for us to create a machine that can talk and use language, we put in the rules, we create the rules. Get about the biggest paradox, it's created by us. And they implemented the system, they realize it's too slow. Oh, okay, fast, efficiency. Those are their concerns, the AI research concerns, because they're engineers. So they create a system that can now talk to us, the Siri program or whatever, but they're all being made fast wired into the system. So we do not understand language using AI. You see, I claim AI cannot solve the mind problem because we are always trying to simulate and implement what the psychologist is saying, but the psychologist has no answer. They only have paradox. That's why my claim for AI should be, we must create a solution for the paradox now, then, we are a really advancing understanding of the mind. So we have three famous paradoxes. The language, learning, I described learning just now. You have to have a program that cannot be taught or told what to do, and yet able to learn the rules. That is AI contribution. And spatial cognition is this. We move around, and psychologists claim that we have a map in the head. We learn a map in our head. Gosh, the map is not precise. The map is inexact, incomplete. Why do we learn an inexact and incomplete map? Why can't we learn an exact map? Now, is it again, you come to the AI people, they say, oh, okay, the robots needs to move around the lab. They need a map, okay. Well, creating a map is easy. You have a wheel, you just move once how many feet forward, another wheel, you combine the two wheels together, you build a map, that's simple mathematics. So they implemented the idea. They realized immediately, oh no, there's serious distortions of the map. Why? Because when the robot moves, there are distortions. So when you move forward one feet, it's not one feet. It could be 1.5 or 1.2 or 0.9. So with those errors accumulating, the map got distorted. Oh, okay, let's solve that problem. This is what engineers are good at. They, like Alan said, they create a problem, they solve the problem, and they focus, and they're very good. They create a slam, a powerful mathematical solution. They could correct the error instantly as it moves. Powerful, but contribute nothing to the mind because we don't have that map. So your solution is not relevant to the mind theory. So if we understood how the spatial connection and then the learning and then the language, we unravel the mystery of the mind, and you will then realize that it's actually quite straightforward why the infants behave the way they behave. Relativity. Relativity is such a core problem in all of this, isn't it? And the fact that as a, as a unique structure within a framework of many structures, our consciousness needs to have relativity. It needs to build its own internal mapping systems. Neuroscientists already have a strong understanding of how the young brain develops, right? And infant brains, child brains, up until young, adult, they're very, very inefficient. They're designed to be inefficient. They're designed to capture everything, filter very, very little. Like Albert said, you can't teach them anything, really. They have to teach themselves. All you can really do is you just 
feed them, feed them, feed them with information and help them maybe in their decision-making processes, it's only until after adulthood that the brain starts to become more efficient and the number of synapses that we've constructed as young people actually decay, they degrade, we lose synapses, right? And is that a problem? Actually, no, it's not. It's actually our brain becoming more efficient. It's getting rid of all of the extraneous stuff that we no longer need. We've built our internal mapping systems. And like, you know, when you go on a trip in a car, right? The first time you take a trip, and it seems to take a long time compared with a subsequent trip. Why is that the case? Well, it's because in that first trip, you're capturing as much data as you can about your trip you're trying to build a relativistic map all of the signposts the indicators the speed the the landmarks that you capture takes a lot of energy and it takes an apparent longer time as you do that same trip over and over again you don't need all those landmarks anymore you can track your distance your timing through that same passage by using fewer and fewer landmarks. And so it takes, in terms of a conscious mind, less time to travel the same amount of distance. Right? And life is like that too. As we get older, we say that life seems to go that much faster. Well, it doesn't really, because time is fairly constant. <laughs> yeah, Gravitational waves accepted. Right? But time is fairly constant. And... Why does it seem to be that it goes so much faster? Well, it's because we're not needing to track as many events as we pass through it. Right? We're not needing to capture as much data to construct our frameworks, our relativistic models. And so we can get by with fewer. That's one thing. On another aspect, of course, we are better able as adults to learn from other people. We can take suggestions. We can take other people's lessons. And we say, oh, I like that. I'm going to try that. I'll insert that into my mapping system. And I'll see if I can make it fit. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And this is an important part, I think, in the learning process. This is, as Albert said, this is something that we haven't been able to do yet. And maybe that's because our models have tended to be too focused on induction and deduction as methods. We haven't, and I, I'm working on a project at the moment where we're trying to build a, an intelligent mapping framework around abductive methods, right? And so ab abduction being the kind of the third model, which hasn't been successfully done yet. And I might have a word with Albert and see how we can incorporate spatial cognition in terms of that mapping framework because I think that's a part of what we're missing in that. And so how does this lead us to what you're asking then Aviva about, you know, the this idea of being an interconnected species? Because our relativistic map requires of us to create interpersonal relationships. It's a part of our model building method. I want to wind the clock back a little bit again to pre-industrial existence, right? because I believe at that time we had in our cultural frameworks at that time a strong interconnected relationship between groups of people. We built 
communities around the existence of these highly connected cultural frameworks, tribalism, if you like. Right? And that was intentionally destroyed right? in order that an industrial landscape could be built. Right? It was intentionally destroyed. When you say it was intentionally destroyed, how do you mean that? Well, because in order for you to have an industrial landscape, you needed to take people out of their tribal existence. You needed to break their relationship with their cultural landscape. Right. And so, but the frame, the frame you're offering that it was broken as a byproduct of the industrial framework rather than as an object by itself? Or are you saying, are you ascribing a more evil uh, conscious intent of breaking the, the social ties of a tribal structure to deliver people into a more atomized structure where they build greater dependency? That, that would ascribe almost to uh, cunning and, and an evil intent. I don't know that you, you mean it in this way or you do. I'm not going to use pejorative terms like evil. Okay. But... In order for you to create a new cultural landscape, you have to dismember what already exists. In order for people to shift themselves out of a world, a culture, and into a new one, you have to break what already exists. Or you introduce another option, and in the conflict, that breaks. Yes. That's right. And so instead of people, for example, earning their living from their labors of themselves in their community, you give them a wage. You give them a, an economic incentive and you give them a carrot or, if you like, a golden ring on that eternal carousel to reach out for. Right? And... Yes, it, it's a deliberate, if, you know, you, it's, you can go back into economic theory and you can look at how this was thought through very consciously. Um, and yes, it, it was deliberate. And a, and a part of this we see because where we live, Albert and I, you know, we live in a decolonized country, right? The people that lived here previously were colonized and they were taken out of their cultural environment and they were put into a different environment and they were not allowed to speak their own language. They were whipped if they were spoken their language. They were told that they had to wear certain clothes because this is what civilized people wear and so on, right? It's conscious and it's deliberate. And I'm not saying that this is unique to this part of the world. It has happened through millennia, yeah? But where I'm going with this is that we're now in a post-industrial world. Mm -hmm. We're now seeing the problems that the technologies that we've created have caused, and many people don't like it, and they want to mitigate or reverse some of the damage that's been caused environmentally, socially, and so on. Right? And we have a technological landscape that has emerged which has allowed for the creation of online tribal existences. There is an interconnectedness that is building up in people, between people, but they're geographically dispersed. The fact that we can do this now gives evidence of that. And 
what we're beginning to see emerge in the social landscape is that there is a new interrelationship that has begun to emerge in communities that weren't able to previously. Now, okay, we can say that there's a bad side of this and everything always seems to have a, a good and a bad side, right? And so we talk about things like this echo chamber effect, right? Where algorithms have seemingly pushed groups of people together and they become self-reinforcing. This is the learning thing that Albert was referring to, right? But it's this learning's happening in people. The algorithms are just accelerating the growth of that passage. What we're missing is we're missing the technological advance that allows for the unexpected to happen, right? So what if, for example, we suddenly had at this point in time a Stephen Hawking avatar drop in on our conversation and we'd all go, wow, that was unexpected. What can this now bring into our conversation, right? So the algorithms that we have with us are built on an inductive and a deductive framework. In other words, they can only take the data that they've got and they can infer or they can posit. But they can't create the unexpected, the create the wholly new. This is something which is uniquely human, the synthetic process. This is the crux. Okay. This is where we are now. So... One way that I decipher the, where we are in the conversation is that there are three overarching inquiries or enigmas or, or buckets of inquiry, rather. One is to do with the mystery of the mind, the mystery of learning, the mystery of how this thing we call intelligence and we experience as intelligent, how is this arising? How does it work? Can we decode that mystery and build something in technology which is life-affirming and augmenting to the purposes of life. That's so, I kind of, I put two spaces in, in that bucket one. The second one is truly build on, builds on that, which is the inquiry of, so what are and how will technology evolve to make us uh, more intelligent about ourselves, more appreciative of our unique humanity to support us. And the third, the third inquiry is how will we off-ramp and save ourselves from each other and from the dark side of technology? Because part of what you were describing there, it's not really part dark side of technology, but darks. what you were describing there, Alan, is how the onset of the Industrial Revolution introduced a new operating system, and that operating system, through the arc of time, leads to the greed-based, exploitative, extractive paradigm, whereby the incentive structure is reversed, where we no longer explore technology through the lens you offer that how can technologies will help us become more intelligent about ourselves and what we can do here. Rather, the, a lot of the um, huge big chunk of the technological research is led by powerful... Essentially, we discovered a bug in the system, okay? It's led by 
the wrong incentives. That is the bug in the system. Now, what do you do in a piece of technology when you discover a bug in the system? You need to create a solution for the bug. The question is whether we have as a humanity at large the capacity to introduce a solution to the bug of the last two or three hundred years that includes the industrial technological computing revolution and the economic framework that enveloped it that led us to this point where we have tremendous possibility but we have some scary trajectories in front of us if we are not able to become more intelligent about how we apply our intelligence. So I'm ready to leave it right there on a cliffhanger and to come back to any of these. I I think that is the high altitude mapping that that I'd offer having listened to what you both offer. I think that there is an intriguing and exciting future in terms of technological advance. I don't know what that's going to look like. I can only trust that our successors have within them the the capacity and the means to ensure that whatever spaces that are created, that they are sufficiently well inviting, that people will want to engage and that they provide the security and the safety that they treated with respect inside that space that is created. Well, so let me ask a uh, closing question, because you just said, you, you said, I don't know what technology will look like, but you offer some direction and you have, may have in part answered my question. I will frame it nevertheless and, and let both of you offer a, a brief comment to that. Suppose you were made a benevolent emperor of the world for an hour and you were given the powers to issue one directive, which is to guide technological development into the future. What do you include in your brief? How do you shape your benevolent direction to the next decade or two or three of technological um, development and evolution? What's your message? What's your brief? What's your direction? For me, it's straightforward. Focus on the intelligence bit and not the artificial bit more. Unravel the mystery of the mind is a beautiful system, the mind. And we have the power to do that. It is. It's the most marvelous thing. And what I would write into the brief is to ensure that humanity is not forgotten in the creation of it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Aviv. Thank you, Albert. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.